0: Welcome back to Raw Material, Season 4, Lovers. This is an arts and culture podcast from SFMOMA. In the previous episode, we talked about sexual partnerships, the relationships between artists, the boundaries that are set, the arrangements that are made, and the power that's exchanged affects an artist's practice. We're zooming out a bit in today's episode and looking at how the activism around the AIDS crisis of the 1980s began the process, still ongoing in fact, of demarginalizing queer voices and homosexual desire within the art world. I'm your host, Chelsea Beck, and I was eight years old in 1988. My family lived in what people might call Wyeth country. Have you heard of it? It's home to the windswept golden fields, starkly wooded areas, and dilapidated barns depicted in the 20th century realist painter Andrew Wyeth's pictures. It's about 30 miles southwest of Philadelphia and two and a half hours outside of New York City. My mother's large, tight-knit family was, and still is, sprinkled throughout this area. We'd gather for most holidays cousins, including second cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. One of my favorite people to see at these gatherings was my Uncle Richard. In fact, he's my second cousin once removed. My mother and he were always close. They both loved ballroom dancing. He loved razzing her. And she loved the attention. He would appear on one of his motorcycles. To our delight, one of them even had a sidecar. He'd arrive either very early or very late in a three-piece suit and a leather jacket. Maybe road goggles, too? With a shock of gray hair and a mustache, he'd speak in what sounded to me like riddles. I realize now most of it was pure snark, like this voicemail I've saved on my phone for years about what he should get my mom for her birthday.
1: I wonder what she wants wall-to-wall carpeting in her new house?
0: Goodness gracious. He would say things like that. And I would smile, laugh, nod my head, then run off to be with my younger cousins. At night, I'd lie in bed and wonder whether wall-to-wall carpeting was a good thing or a bad thing. Richard had a life that seemed bigger than what my parents had. He lived in New York, where he'd go out and see things. Dance performances, art exhibitions, things that didn't come to Wyeth country. Also, he didn't have a wife or kids. He did have interesting younger male friends. Some of these friends would even come to our gatherings. But there weren't many regulars. In a haze of suburban-sheltered heteronormativity, I couldn't quite fit all the pieces together. And no one was going to do it for me. Remember, this was the 80s. TV shows didn't have gay people on them. My two dads was actually about two straight dads. And this friend euphemism, it was pretty common. To this day, I don't think I ever heard Richard say the word gay. He certainly wasn't trying to hide it, but he wasn't talking about it either. It was beginning in 1988 when Uncle Richard's presence at our family events became pretty erratic. And for a time, it mostly stopped. His was a noticeable absence. Who would nudge me like I was in the know enough to be an accomplice if Richard wasn't there? Who would bulge their eyes at me in disbelief at these uncultured buffoons we called family? Plus, I'd been waiting for my turn to ride in his motorcycle sidecar. Where's Richard? Why wasn't Uncle Richard here? I asked my mom. These questions were hard for her. She would say he was with a sick friend, taking care of him. She would say, he was at a funeral. She would say, a friend of his just died and he couldn't make it. I started to notice a pretty morbid pattern, but I didn't have the words for it. And not just because I was a kid. The language of AIDS was silenced, politicized, and homophobic. There was a great disconnect between the realities of the AIDS crisis, the day-to-day pain of it, and what the government was telling its citizens. To put this epidemic in perspective, I'm sure we all knew more about the Zika virus within the first months of its detection than we did about AIDS in the first eight years of its identification here. It wasn't until 1993 that the Center for Disease Control's definition of AIDS included women. Before then, it affected men only. Yes, what I'm saying here is science is political. And don't even get me started, that's a whole other podcast. My Uncle Richard had become a part-time nurse, a moonlighting eulogizer, and a professional mourner. This was a new and rapidly growing sector for those who weren't sick themselves. The art historian Douglas Crimp is a few years younger than my Uncle Richard, who gave up his motorcycles long ago and now only makes occasional trips to New York City to see old friends, catch a dance performance, or attend a rare plant auction. I thought about Richard often as I read Douglas's 2016 memoir, Before Pictures, Douglas is refreshingly forthcoming about his own sex life and about the joys of cruising in New York City before AIDS. He's also, like Richard, very into dance.
1: Um, I would go out with my artist art world friends and have dinner and they would go home, I think, and I would go to bars or dancing or sex clubs or, you know, cruising on the streets or something like that.
0: Would Richard go cruise? as the rest of my family nodded off in a turkey-induced coma? I'd like to think so. But where does one even cruise in Wyeth country? Love, love, love. Douglas wasn't just reliving his glory days for nostalgia's sake— he was pinpointing a particular time when the queer scene was quite separate from the art scene. They were pretty separate worlds.
1: The two rooms of Max's Kansas City, the front room where the, the artists were, and the back room where the drag queens were. And I always wanted to go to the back room. I always did go to the back room, but to get there I had to pass through the front room where there were all these artists that I knew. You know, I didn't stop and sit down at their tables, but I would, of course, say hello to
0: them. Most famously, Andy Warhol and his entourage hung out in the back room. Andy was far out, too far out, too swish, as he described it, to hang out in the front, where artists like Richard Serra and Robert Rauschenberg congregated. It wasn't that the artists in the front weren't gay— Indeed, some, like Robert Rauschenberg, had relationships with men. But their queerness was quiet, almost invisible, and definitely not openly discussed. The whole joint was notoriously unfriendly to women. But some, such as feminist artist Linda Benglis, persevered. Who knows? She was probably there collecting data, observing all the machismo for her 1974 art form ad in which she appears naked proudly grasping a lifelike 12-inch dildo, as if it were her own throbbing cock. In his book Before Pictures, Douglas uses the two rooms of Max's as a metaphor for his life at the time. His post-Stonewall, sexually promiscuous gay life, and his life in the art world as a budding critic. Today, the art world and the queer world have lots of overlap. But back then, it wasn't so clear. As Douglas was working on the memoir, he sought out some photographs of New York's now-demolished West Side piers that captured simultaneously two distinct worlds in which he existed.
1: Gordon M. Clark, you know, made these famous cuts in that pier. And I was interested in the gay cruising and sex scene in the piers in which I participated. And I knew that a little-known African-American photographer, Alvin Baltrop, had photographed that scene. And I happened, by a stroke of luck, to have met the young artist who is the trustee of Baltrop's estate. And I went to his place, and he pulled the photographs out from like under his bed. And there were these photographs of gay men cruising in Day's End in this, this artwork and came in sunbathing on the same pier with the Gordon Matta-Clark cut.
0: Gordon was one of the front room artists at Max's, one of the dudes. He performed architectural interventions on abandoned, decrepit buildings around New York City in the 1970s. Cutting away large shapes or cross sections of buildings, sometimes splitting them right in half. He would drive around in his pickup exploring New York's unoccupied spaces and, as he says, hunt for emptiness, for a quiet abandoned spot on which to concentrate my piercing attention. But these spaces weren't quite as empty as Gordon might have originally thought. You know who else was looking for abandoned spots? Gay men. And they came upon the piers long before Gordon— who, as Douglas points out in his memoir, was always careful to distance himself from. Alvin was also there, staked out in these huge, dilapidated structures, sometimes as a participant, obsessively photographing all the debauchery going on at the piers. He even met his boyfriend there. The images he captured were part of a series called The Piers, which began in 1975 And it ended in 1986. Alvin died of cancer in 2004. And though his photographs are just as compelling as other photographers documenting the fringes of street life in the 1970s, he did not, in his lifetime or posthumously, receive the acclaim or recognition his white contemporaries received. A curator even went so far as to accuse Alvin of stealing a white artist's photographs Alvin describes his process this way.
2: Although initially terrified of the peers, I began to take these photos as a voyeur and soon grew determined to preserve the frightening, mad, unbelievable, violent, and beautiful things that were going on at that time. To get certain shots, I hung from the ceilings of several warehouses utilizing a a makeshift harness watching and waiting for hours to record the lives these people led friends acquaintances and and strangers and the unfortunate ends that they sometimes met the casual sex and nonchalant narcotizing the creation of artwork and music sunbathing dancing merrymaking and the like habitually gave way to muggings, callous, yet detached to violence, rape, suicide, and in some instances, murder. The rapid emergence and expansion of AIDS in the 1980s further reduced the number of people going to and living at the Piers and the sporadic joys that could be found there.
0: AIDS changed everything, the Piers and the city. For Alvin, for Douglas, for Richard. Gordon died of cancer before the crisis. Of course, there were plenty of queer artists and art about queerness before AIDS, but there was a separation between that work and the world of gallerists and museums and criticism. They were hidden, forced to the margins, or to separate rooms. It wasn't until 1986 the Douglas began to speak about being gay within an art context. AIDS made everything personal.
1: And within my AIDS work I began to write about myself. I mean I I began to write in the first person. I began to talk about my own experience, my own first experience of speaking about being gay and being critical of a of The art world's segregation of a certain kind of political art, it was in this case Hans Hacke and the New Museum, juxtaposed with Bill Olander's show called Homo Video, which included a lot of the early AIDS videos. Homo Video was in one part of the New Museum, and the Hacke show was the main show, and there was no conversation about this juxtaposition at
0: all. Again, with the front room and the back room stuff, just like at Max's. The homophobia, racism, and male-centered thinking surrounding the AIDS crisis forced marginalized groups to make their voices heard, to demand visibility. It was a matter of life and death. They did this by documenting and disseminating their own narratives. They centered themselves in the conversation about AIDS.
1: The effect of AIDS on the art world, in terms of the number of artists, curators, critics, and so on, who became ill and who died, and the work that was being done by all of us who were doing activist work in the art world as well, uh, had, I think, a, a very uh, transformative effect on the relation between the queer world and the, and the art world.
0: AIDS activism became a unifying force. The dissonance between those seeing their communities ravaged by the disease and the lack of support, lack of recognition from the government, became a movement that forced many to merge these separate worlds. Abram Finkelstein, the artist, self-declared propagandist and member of the collective that created the famous black with a lone pink triangle poster, Silence Equals Death, said the idea came in part as a rebuttal to the homophobic rhetoric that basically boiled down to sex equals death. Gay sex equals death. Sex was and still can be a form of resistance. And art, too, of course. But the face of AIDS and the artist whose work tells its story must represent those who suffer most from our collective silence. This is why the silence equals death poster is still so relevant today. Women of color, trans people of color, are still, to reprise Douglas's Max's Kansas City metaphor yet again, are not being heard above the din in either the front or back rooms. Here's musician and rapper Mickey Blanco, reciting the artist and activist Zoe Leonard's poem from 1992, I Want a Dyke for President, from a film by Adina Danziger.
1: I want a dyke for president. I want a person with AIDS for president. And I want a fag for a vice president. And I want someone with no health insurance. And I want someone who grew up in a place where the earth is so saturated with toxic waste that they didn't have a choice about getting leukemia. I want a president that had an abortion at 16, and I want a candidate who isn't the lesser of two evils. And I want a president who lost their last lever to AIDS, who still sees that in their eyes every time they lay down to rest, who held their lever in their arms and knew they were dying.
0: 26 years later, Zoe Leonard's poem is just as vital. Shining a light on, and putting power into the hands of people whose communities subsist at the margins of society raises the quality of life for all of us. Art creates visibility. If silence equals death, then art equals life. So, fuck loudly. In the next episode of Lovers, we talk to the artist and activist Leila Babiri. She fled her native Uganda because her sexual identity made her a target for discrimination, censorship, and even death. The thing is, her sexuality is also a source of artistic inspiration. As she says, her art is gay. It is inseparable from her queerness. Thanks for listening. I'm Chelsea Beck. This is season four of Raw Material, Lovers. The audio of Douglas is from a conversation between Douglas Crimp and Claudia LaRocco of Open Space at the Lab. And thank you to Eugene Robinson for making Alvin Baltrup's words come to life. Most of the music you've heard throughout the episode is by Annie Rossi. Subscribe to Raw Material wherever you find podcasts. That way you won't miss a single episode and follow us on Instagram at raw material podcast for episode updates and behind the scenes shots of what we're up to.